Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by The Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia, and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the indispensable shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, a counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. And my co-host, and partner in this enterprise, Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C., and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at Center for Strategic and International Studies. Elliot, welcome. How are you? I'm just great, uh, Eric. I was uh, just at a retreat, actually, for CSIS. It was a very serious workshop. We had a bonding exercise that one afternoon, at which I discovered I'm actually pretty good at throwing axes, so I'm not quite sure what I will do with that skill, although I have some dark thoughts now and again. It's, well, I knew you had an axe to grind, but yeah. there we go. Yeah, well, it's ground and you know, can end up where it needs to go. It's a great pleasure to introduce a, uh, a friend, a former colleague, and uh, if he won't be embarrassed uh, that I mention it, a former teacher, Michael Mandelbaum who I first met when uh, I think you were a brand new assistant professor, maybe at, uh, at Harvard. I, I believe you, you wrote a letter of recommendation to get me into graduate school. So you have that, uh, that responsibility on your, on your conscience. Michael Mandelbaum's had an extraordinarily distinguished career, educated at Yale, at Harvard, at Cambridge University. Um, he, taught, he taught at Harvard. He also uh, has uh, had uh, senior positions at the Council on Foreign Relations, Carnegie Corporation. I could go on, author of many, many books on nuclear strategy, on American foreign policy, on baseball. Uh, so someone with very wide interests. But I hope that the, uh, the peak of his career, as of mine, was teaching uh, at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies, where he was the Christian Herder, Professor of American Foreign Policy, and as I said, a, a friend and a colleague. The two don't always go together, I have to point out. And he has just written a great book, The Four Ages of American Foreign Policy. So, Michael, welcome. Thank you. I did have the pleasure of teaching you at the very beginning of my teaching career. And needless to say, from that point, my teaching career went downhill. <laughs> as it could only do after teaching you, Elliot. Well, too kind of you to say. So you've written this, uh, this book, uh, The Four Ages of American Foreign Policy. I don't think I give away too much if, if I say you divide it, you divide the history of American foreign policy into the history as a, a weak power, as a great power, superpower during the Cold War, and then the hyperpower. And I think it's also fair to say that in some ways, the, one of the theses of the book is we actually do pretty well as a weak power, pretty well as a great power, pretty well as a superpower, and kind of blow it as a hyperpower. That may be a bit of an exaggeration. Let me ask a completely out of left field, if I can use a baseball metaphor in your presence, sort of question. You know, you, you begin with the early republic. Is there anything about American foreign policy we should learn from the colonial period, or do you think... Uh, I, mean, I actually tend to think there is, but uh, I'm curious if you think so as well. Well, I would say there are two things to learn from the colonial period. One is the United States was a weak power 
and the strategies that weak powers employ are quite different from the strategies of great powers and superpowers and hyperpowers. And we were, as you say, good at them. Uh, we managed to get free of the British uh, by demonstrating to the British that we would fight, even though we couldn't help really, we couldn't hope really finally to defeat them. And most important of all, we managed to get great power allies. And that was crucial. We could not have won the revolutionary wars we did without the French. Uh, that's not relevant to American strategy now, but it's important because it's the kind of strategy that other countries employ against us. Uh, the Vietnamese and the Vietnam War, uh, the Iraqis, um, in, in the, the South and the Civil War, all employed some version of the strategies of the weak, which I outline in the first part of the book. The second way that the, the, uh, the early period is relevant to us is that uh, I believe that there have been three major continuities in American foreign policy over the 250 years that I cover, and they recur throughout the book. I say that the United States has, compared with other countries, conducted an unusually ideological foreign policy, that is, the spread of American ideas has been important to us, an unusually economic foreign policy, which is to say that more than other countries, we have tried to use economic instruments to achieve political goals, and an unusually democratic foreign policy, by which I mean that in the conduct and the formulation of American foreign policy, in comparison with other countries, the public, the American public, has played an unusually large role. Now, it seems to me that one importance of the early period is that those continuities, those tendencies showed up at the very beginning. We can trace, or at least I do trace, those three continuities all the way back to the 18th century and the revolutionary period. America has changed remarkably since then, and of course, has grown increasingly powerful, and that makes a huge difference. But those three continuities are still with us 250 years later. You know, I, I completely agree with that. Before I throw it over to Eric, I, I'd say there's one other continuity, uh, and I'd be curious to hear your reaction, which is even in the colonial period, and for sure thereafter, whether Americans wanted it to be this way or not, we were engaged in great power politics. That is to say, you know, if you look at the great wars between England and France, starting at the end of the 17th century, but going through you know, what, the War of the Spanish Succession, which we called Queen Anne's War, the Seven Years' War, which was the French and Indian War in North America, you know, each of these major conflicts, we got engaged. And in some cases, they actually started in North America. And I, I, I think that the reason why I would just mention that is, and maybe this would be a good transition for Eric, that contrary to the notion that even I th if I'm not mistaken, people like C. Van Woodward said, well, you know, the United States had this period of isolation from the world and we only kind of break into it 
fitfully and during World War I and then seriously after 1940. That's not really true, that we're an internationally engaged nation from the outset, just as you say, in rather different ways at different times uh, and in ways that are quite distinct. You're absolutely right, and it's an important point to make. The United States has never been isolated, never could isolate itself, never really wanted to isolate itself, certainly not completely. North Americans speak English because of the Seven Years' War, which was a great European and global war, which, as you note, was begun in North America by a detachment of the Virginia militia led by Colonel George Washington. Uh, The Revolutionary War was won because it became involved in great power politics. The British were willing to give Americans their independence, grudgingly, to be sure, because by the time 1783 rolled around, whether or not the 13 colonies were an independent country was of distinctly secondary importance to the British, secondary to their conflict with the French, which they wanted to be free to pursue. And then between 1793 and 1815, the United States was against its will drawn into the uh, Napoleonic Wars. And that led to a flurry of diplomacy and it led to the War of 1812, which, as I say in the book, was in my view, the most misbegotten foreign policy in the history of the United States. But the United States, whether it wanted to or not, was wrapped up and deeply affected by great power politics. Now, it's true that between 1815 and 1915, it was less involved in great power politics. But trade, especially with Britain, was always important. And the United States was able to avoid great power politics because Uh, the European powers stayed out of the Western Hemisphere. Now, the Monroe Doctrine of 1823 declared the Western Hemisphere off limits for colonization to the great powers of Europe after Spain had lost its Latin American uh, possessions. But uh, the Monroe Doctrine was enforced until almost the end of the century, not by the United States, which certainly didn't have the military wherewithal to enforce it, but by the Royal Navy. There was a coincidence of interest between the United States and Great Britain, and Great Britain made sure that other European great powers stayed out of the Western Hemisphere. The British were very active there, but they didn't want colonies in Latin America. They only wanted to trade. So even in the period when the United States had least to do with the great powers of Europe and power politics. That was courtesy of the greatest maritime power of all, Great Britain. Yeah, Elliot, your reference to the late uh, Van Woodward, who was actually one of my teachers at Yale in graduate school, I think is a reference to his 1960 American Historical Association presidential address in which he says that the United States for most of its history up until the 20th century enjoyed what he called free security, But the point Michael has just made, I think, has been always the great answer to that, which it was free security because the cost was borne by Britain and uh, the Royal Navy. Michael, I want to pick on one thread uh, of uh, your discussion with Elliot when you talked about the three continuities born in the 
in the sort of revolutionary period or the early period of American history. And that is the use of the economic instrument in foreign policy and national security affairs. And it, it starts really early with, one could trace it, I suppose, to a sentiment which clearly was in common at the time of the Declaration of Independence. Tom Paine writes in Common Sense that as long as it's the habit of Europeans to eat, the United States will always be, you know, be in a commanding position because it will be able to control, you know, Europeans' access to food. Europe was uh, urbanizing, so they weren't producing as much food. They were going to need American agricultural exports to to survive. And in 1812, this comes up, right? Because this is Jefferson and Madison are playing the weak hand uh, in terms of a, uh, a weak military power by trying to use the economic uh, mechanism, whether it's the embargo or the Non-Intercourse Act, trying to use either the export or the dependence on American exports uh, by the Europeans as, a, as an instrument of military power. But as you argue in the book, this is like the almost the first instinctive recourse of American policymakers in almost any situation. And is that still the case, do you think? Sure. Look at the sanctions on Russia. Now, the sanctions on Russia are more effective, or we hope they will be more effective than other economic sanctions and trade embargoes have been in the past because other countries have adopted them. And of course, the broader economic sanctions are, the more effective they are. And I think it's probably true to say that the broadest sanctions, maybe in history, have been the ones imposed on Iran. But it does, the, the American impulse to, to try to achieve political goals by economic means goes all the way back to the beginning. When the parliament imposed taxes that the colonials regarded as unjust, and this was, of course, the root cause of the American Revolution, an initial, an initial response was a boycott of British goods on the theory that this would put pressure on British merchants to put pressure on the parliament to repeal them, and it had some success. I think the reason, there, there, there are three reasons for this reflexive recourse to economic sanctions. Uh, first, when the United States was weak, it didn't have any military instruments that it could use. Then when it became strong and a global power, it often wished to express its disapproval of things that other countries were doing but not to the extent of going to war. So this was a second best response. It was a way of saying, I'm very, very angry at you. And the third reason is that the United States has been, from the beginning, a commercial republic. And therefore, Americans, prone like every other people to mirror imaging, have persistently assumed that what mattered to them must matter and must matter as much to other peoples. And that means that the United States has frequently overestimated the leverage that it can get on other countries' foreign policies by wielding the economic instrument. Uh, two other things that are worth noting here. One is that perhaps the most disastrous overestimation from the point of view of the government doing the overestimating of the impact of the economic instrument on foreign policy 
was the Confederate States of America on Great Britain. That the Confederacy needed Great Britain, needed British recognition to have a chance of winning and assumed it would get such recognition and the British government seriously considered it. But the, the Confederacy decided that the way to assure Britain being on their side was to impose an embargo on the cotton shipped to the Lancashire mills. And the British would feel the pain so acutely that they would do what the Confederacy wanted. Didn't work that way. It turned out that they'd shipped too much in 1860, so the British didn't need the cotton in 1861, and the British then turned to alternative suppliers, uh, Egypt and India in particular, and so they were free to decide their policy on the American Civil War on other grounds, not economic grounds, and ultimately they, and I believe Palmerston was the one who made the decision as foreign secretary, decided not to intervene on the side of the Confederacy because after 1863 and probably after Gettysburg, they thought that the Union would win and they didn't want to alienate the Union. So that's a long-winded way of saying that uh, economic sanctions are as old and as American as apple pie. Before I kick it back to to Elliot, I want to uh, get your thoughts. I mean, this book is a book about America's uh, passage through different uh, levels of power, essentially, different military and economic power at different stages of its historical experience, uh, and the way that has led it to approach its interactions with the rest of the countries and the nations in the international system. And so from that point of view, people might look at it and say, this is a realist uh, history, a realist uh, analysis of of U.S. foreign policy, but in part because you stress so much the ideological dimension, it uh, departs quite a bit from you know academic uh, realism, which we hear so much about these days in terms of uh, discourse about American foreign policy. How would you characterize your own approach to this vis-a-vis the so-called realists? Well, I think everybody who knows anything about any kind of history is a realist in the sense that in international politics since Thucydides, power matters. The more power you have, the more you can do. Uh, The less power you have, the more vulnerable you are. That uh, exerts a powerful influence on your foreign policy. And countries do tend to defend their own interests and try to husband and, where possible, expand their own power. Uh, I certainly part company with some realists who think that all countries are what has been called an offensive or offensive realist. They try to expand as far as possible. The historical record doesn't bear that out. But power is important. And to to the extent that realism says power is important, uh, it is, of course, correct. But it's not all important all the time. And one of the things that distinguishes my analysis of 250 years of American uh, foreign policy is that I believe that the United States has had from the beginning, and especially since the United States became a major force in the world at the beginning of the 20th century, two approaches to the conduct of foreign policy. One is realism. The other is what is sometimes called idealism. 
realism I associate in the book with Theodore Roosevelt, who spent a lot of his presidency trying to contrive a stable balance of power in East Asia. Idealism is identified with Woodrow Wilson, and it is sometimes called Wilsonianism. And Wilson believed that the purpose of American foreign policy was to spread American values, most particularly democracy within countries and peace among them. Now, uh, where there has been a conflict between the realist impulse and the idealist impulse, realism has usually won out. Americans have been willing to sacrifice their values in support of their interests. Example A, the alliance with Stalin's Soviet Union in World War II. But uh, American ideals and American ideas have always been important. They've always been matters of consideration. They've always been on the agenda. No president since Woodrow Wilson has ever dismissed them entirely. And so they are an important part of the American tradition, uh, an important part of American foreign policy. And because the United States has been so important in the world, really since the beginning of the 20th century, 20th century, but especially since the middle, these ideas in this tradition have been an important, not a dominant, but an important part of international politics. Two uh, points uh, to follow up here that, that are relevant, I think, in, indeed relevant to, to uh, our current foreign policy. In wars, uh, every single major American war without exception, and I count 12, has provoked dissent. Dissent is also as American as apple pie, although it's taken different forms. Dissenters in the Revolutionary War, uh, for example, simply went to Canada. And the dissent about World War II was fiercest before the United States formally entered the war. After Pearl Harbor, America first disappeared. Uh, but uh, the dissent uh, is baked into the American political DNA. But in American wars, where uh, idealism and realism have been aligned, there has been wider support when it's been either one or the other. World War II, the Cold War examples, and I think so far, uh, Ukraine is an example. The United States is supporting the Ukrainians both out of American interests and out of American values. And I think that accounts for the, uh, the breadth of support. Another example, I do indeed think that American foreign policy was successful until the fourth era, the era of the American hyperpower, which leads to a paradox that America has been least successful when it was most powerful. The United States fought very minor wars of values, uh, humanitarian intervention. And in those wars, especially in the Clinton administration, the calculation was that the maximal number of American casualties from American military action was zero. And that, I think, was an accurate appraisal. And it was based ultimately on the fact that it was American values, not American interests that were at stake. Building on, on that observation that, you know, as you depicted, American foreign policy is less successful when it's a hyperpower than in the, the previous three periods. 
Could you say a little bit about why is that the case? I mean, the, on, on the one hand, you know, there are the usual things, hubris, mediocre leadership. On the other hand, can you say, well, you know, rise of China, there wasn't a whole lot we were going to do about it uh, that we could do about it, even if we wanted to. How do you explain that period? And do you think that the, this is a second question, I suppose, do you think that that era of hyperpower is coming to an end after a relatively short period of time? Well, let me answer the second question first. I think it has ended, and that's why I end the book in 2015. The era of American hyperpower, the 25 years between 1990 and 2015, were, I argue, a period when the United States had no serious challengers and faced no serious security threats. I take 2015, slightly arbitrary to be sure, as the point at which it became clear that China and Russia in different ways were security threats, that power politics had returned. And we also, as as you both know well, face a third serious security threat in the Middle East in the form of the Islamic Republic of Iran. But before that, I distinguished the period as one in which we did not regard Russia or China as actual or potential threats. Now, uh, why the failure in that period? Well, I think there's one major reason. The United States had a particular project during that period, and that project was to spread to different countries in different parts of the world a particular form of government a form of government wherein the state, uh, the government is chosen by free and fair elections, wherein the government respects the rights of its citizens, wherein the government helps to foster an economic climate that permits prosperity, and wherein the government is at peace with its neighbors. In other words, our form of government. It wasn't crazy after the fall of communism to think that history was moving in that direction. It wasn't crazy, for example, to think that bringing China into the global economy would push it toward a democratic form of government. I call that in the book, the liberal theory of history. Turned out to be wrong, but it wasn't crazy. There was some evidence to support it. And it wasn't crazy to think that that was the appropriate goal for American foreign policy, because if Russia, China, and Iran had democratic, rights-protecting, peace-loving governments, the world would be much different, and the burdens on American foreign policy would be much lighter. So it wasn't wrong to try that or even to believe or hope that it could be accomplished, but it could not be accomplished. And the reason it could not be accomplished is that this form of government, our form of government, has certain preconditions. In order to have such a form of government, a country has to have certain values, certain institutions, and certain experiences. And lots of countries, unfortunately, including Russia and China, do not. And this form of government cannot be fostered overnight. It takes at least a generation to build up the values, the institutions, and the experiences, and it cannot be transplanted wholesale as we tried to do in a few places. So although I think 
the American mission, the American project, the, the, the purpose of American foreign policy in the fourth era of American foreign policy was logical. It was, alas, mission impossible. So could you, just to quickly follow up and then back to Eric, is it too soon to try to characterize the fifth period? Well, uh, I didn't... Or is that another book? Uh, I think uh, I didn't try to characterize it. You've got to end somewhere, and I did end it. And also by ending it in 2015, I didn't have to include in the book you-know-who, uh, whose name does not appear uh, in the index. <laughs> Certainly, we are back to an era of power politics, Certainly, it has some family resemblances to the Cold War, partly in the sense that the Cold War resembled all periods of power politics in some basic ways. Uh, I would say the differences so far are that we're not facing the kind of ideological threat that militant Marxism, Leninism, Maoism was at the height of the Cold War. We're facing so far, I think, three regional threats, not a single global one, although that could change. And most important of all, the Soviet Union and the communist bloc were not part of the global economy. And so economic issues didn't matter anything like uh, to, to anything like the extent they do now when China is central to the global economy and Russia has or has had uh, a serious, although far lesser role. More than that, I, I don't think I can say. I, I do not aspire to be the George Kennan of the post-Cold post, post War era. <laughs> I, I want to come back to the challenges of uh, China, Russia, and Iran uh, in a minute, because you've written about that, Michael, as well in not this most recent book, but the previous book you wrote. And I think given the uh, events of the day, it, it would be good to have you comment on them. But I I want to go back to something that Elliot touched on, that you touch on in the book. In this period of U.S. hyperpower, the post-Cold War, one of the things you talk about and you've written about in another book is the fact that the United States assumed this role. It wasn't necessarily a given that it would take on this uh, you know, very large role in the world, given American history. But in part, it was at the behest of friends and allies, because the United States had been providing, as you've put it in another context, global public goods of a security framework that people found conducive to their own security and prosperity. So my question is a little bit different than Elliot's. I'm not asking you to characterize this period we're in now, but is it still the case that the United States is providing sort of these global public goods? And if so, for how long can we expect that to continue given all these multiplicity of challenges? Well, that's the uh, $64 trillion question. The United States does still provide those global goods and other countries still do look to the United States. And I think we saw uh, a kind of shock of recognition in Western Europe after February 24th when the Europeans said, or less out loud, something that they hadn't been saying out loud for decades, which is, OMG, we really need the United States. The United States is crucial for us. We started that role after 1945 because we thought that that was the way to prevent World War III. The Cold War was regarded by Americans as worth waging because it was defensive 
and it, 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 it warded off another terrible war. And even when it became clear that another terrible war wasn't around the corner, Americans were willing to go along with it because to withdraw could set in motion events that could lead to another war. And anyway, it wasn't all that difficult. It wasn't all that expensive. When the Cold War ended, the founding rationale for the American provision of global goods disappeared, but the American role continued partly because of inertia, partly because foreign policy, like other policy, tends to be disproportionately influenced by elites, and the American foreign policy elite, despite all the differences among and within its members, tends to be in favor of a major American role in the world. Tends to be, there are exceptions. Uh, and third, uh, because it didn't cost that much. It, it, we, we didn't have to do much beyond what we were doing. In fact, the proportion of the GDP devoted to defense was cut in half after the end of the Cold War. So if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Uh, now it's becoming more expensive and we're seeing at the margins voices in the political arena who don't want us to do as much as we've been doing. So uh, I think it's possible that we will have a serious debate about just how much the United States should do. I would say for the first time since 1952, when uh, Robert Taft contested the Republican presidential nomination with Dwight Eisenhower, and when Taft really didn't want to do as much as the United States was doing. He wanted to roll back the things that Truman had done, including NATO. Uh, I think that's possible. I don't know. Um, and of course, the more expensive and the more dangerous the American role becomes, uh, the more likely it is that we will hear dissenting voices about this role in general. But let me add two caveats here. First of all, Americans tend to dissent not against a global role, but against specific policies. And in wars since the middle of the 20th century, uh, they have dissented against wars where American casualties were higher than they thought was worth the candle. So it's particular wars that have provoked dissent, not providing global public goods. Um, and second, uh, Americans tend to be rather, well, I won't say aggressive, but they don't like to back down. That is, uh, when if a country say, wags its finger, if somebody like Vladimir Putin says, you better stop helping Ukraine or you'd really be in trouble. Americans don't take that well. They say, you say that, watch us. We're going to double down on what we're doing. So I think there is part of the American national character. Maybe it's what uh, Walter Russell Mead called the Jacksonian strain in American foreign policy that says, no, 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 we're not, we're not being pushed around by bullies. We're going to stand up. Since you mentioned uh, Putin, I was wondering, uh, before we get on to some other subjects, uh, I mean, you're somebody who's followed Russia very closely throughout your career. What's your take right now on uh, Russia and Ukraine and what American policy ought to be? Well, I certainly don't have any special wisdom, especially compared with the two of you. 
Uh, it does, I, I would say uh, a number of things. Uh, first, as in all wars, what is crucial is what happens on the battlefield, and it radiates out from that. So it's to the, to the extent that Ukraine does well, that will have an impact on the other two battlefields, Western opinion and Russian opinion. Uh, so it's a good idea to help the Ukrainians do as well as possible. Second, um, it seems to me hard to imagine an end to this war, let alone a satisfactory conclusion while Putin is in power. So the necessary condition for ending the war on anything like reasonable terms is getting rid of Vladimir Putin. That may not be a sufficient condition. We just don't know. But I think it's a necessary condition. So the question is, how do we do that? And there are two ways. One is the Russians will take matters into their own hands. There have got to be lots of people who are upset about what's happening in Russia. And I would think, uh, and I would be interested in, in both of your views about this, the army must be very upset because they're losing their troops. They've lost most of their equipment and, and basically for nothing. Uh, so maybe there's some colonel somewhere who will get it into his head to, to take matters into his own hands, although we can be confident that Putin spends a lot of time and resources guarding against that. The other thing where we simply don't, uh, we simply don't know how to evaluate this it's true that the, the Russian peasant, now the, 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 uh, the inhabitant of deeper Russia, not the, the sophisticates in, in Moscow and St. Petersburg, many of whom, of course, have left, but Ivan Ivanovich on the Volga uh, has a lot of tolerance for bad times. Um, suffering is something... Or, in, in any event, extreme discomfort is something that the Russians are used to. But surely, even with them, there's a limit. There has to be a point at which so many kids from their little towns or villages are not coming back when the sanctions really do affect even them out there in the Russian hinterland, that they get angry and they manifest their anger in some fashion. I don't know how. In other words, I do not believe that Russia has a bottomless capacity to absorb sanctions. I don't know where the breaking point is. I don't know when it will come. I don't know if it will come. But I don't think that in this case, sanctions are purely virtue signaling by we, by, by we in the West. I think they, they have had some impact. And my guess is that their impact will grow over time and somehow that will have an impact on Russia's conduct of the war, on how it's being conducted and more to the point, who's conducting it. You know, Michael, I was struck as I was reading your book, particularly uh, in the section on World War II, by your characterization of Hitler's launching Operation Barbarossa, his invasion of the Soviet Union in June of 1941, which he expected to lead to a rapid collapse of the Soviet state, an easy occupation uh, by the Wehrmacht, and that in the U.S., the state of opinion inside the U.S. government, that is to say in the uh, Department of State, Department of War, was 
that it would only be a matter of days uh, before the Soviet Union just completely collapsed. And it did strike me that, uh, as Mark Twain reputedly said, history may not repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. You know, this is clearly what Putin thought was going to happen in Ukraine, which was that the Ukrainian state was artificial, that it was going to collapse. They told the Russian troops to pack their uh, dress uniforms so that they could have a big parade in Kiev when they liberated it from the so-called Nazis in Ukraine. I mean, is is this a an instance of history rhyming? And if if so, does that tell us anything about how this might play out? Well, it's a very interesting comparison, although I can't imagine saying this under any other circumstances. I think you're being a little unfair to Hitler. Uh, in the sense All right, that's the first podcast. He, he had seen the, the Red Army in action against Finland, and it had done very poorly. He had seen Stalin purge all of his competent officers. So it wasn't, it wasn't foolish to think that the Russian would collapse. And to a very great extent, they did collapse. And I think it's important to note, and I I can't remember whether I say this in the book we're discussing now or in the book that I'm now finishing, which has chapters on Hitler and Churchill. Hitler came very close to winning his war. December 5th, 1941 was the crucial moment because that was the time when the Russians for the first time launched a counterattack outside the gates of Moscow. Had the Russians taken Moscow, I think they could have won the war. Stalin and in the Politburo would have retreated beyond the Urals, but they wouldn't have been able to organize a serious resistance. And at that point, I think that uh, the Red Army might well have collapsed. It's at least arguable that it would have. And in that case, Britain might have become disheartened and chucked out Churchill, who was never going to come to terms with, uh, with Hitler, and put in Halifax or somebody. And of course, it, John Lukash, the late John Lukash, has wrote, written a book called Five Days of May uh, in 1940, in May 1940, when the Italian ambassador surfaced the idea of the British negotiating with Hitler through Mussolini, and there was a lot of interest in doing it in Britain, and Churchill put his foot down and managed to prevent it. So that was a crucial moment, but I think- December- With the backing, by the way, of Chamberlain. I mean, he, he, it was Chamberlain who backed him in that cabinet debate against Halifax. And Yes, although that wasn't, you know, Chamberlain, as you know, had wanted Halifax, not Churchill, to be prime minister. And Churchill was not popular among the Tories. And Churchill, as you recall, pulled off this stunt of going outside the war cabinet, going to the cabinet as a whole, giving them a pep talk, getting them to line up behind his war policy, and then going back to the smaller war cabinet and saying, you know, the whole cabinet's behind me, we can't possibly change course. It's also worth noting here, we're digressing a bit, but it was important both for Churchill becoming prime minister and for turning down the, uh, the Italian overture that this was a coalition cabinet, that the uh, the Labour Party was well represented and they were more anti-fascist than the Tories and they were not going to knuckle under uh, to Mussolini and Hitler. In any event, uh, so I think uh, it, it is the case that uh, Putin dramatically and let us hope fatally misread Ukraine and it brings up 
uh, one of the few axioms of social science that I think does hold up, and that is high coercion systems or low information systems. Before the war, and I presume even today, people don't want to give the maximal leader the bad news. And if the truth is bad news, they won't tell it. And Putin, after all, was, was isolated for a couple of years with only some crazy Russian nationalist to keep him company. So uh, I, my guess is that he genuinely believed that this would be a walkover. But after all, our government thought so too. We were sending out signals to, uh, to, to the Ukrainians uh, to the Ukrainian president, to Zelensky saying, you know, we'll provide a plane for you. And Zelensky immortally said, I don't need a ride, I need guns. Uh, so uh, there's another, thing I, it, as long as I'm blotting my copybook, let me quote the only line of Hitler's that I've ever thought was worth repeating. And that is starting a war is like entering a dark room. You just don't know what's on the other side. I'm going to try to move us to somewhat safer ground. Uh, you know, Michael, you've had a, uh, an extremely distinguished academic career. You've been at the top institutions, Harvard, Johns Hopkins University, I suppose. I'll concede Yale and Columbia as well, Cambridge University. But I think it's fair to say, and this is something that I think the two of us have thought a lot about, the academic world that we entered is just not like the academic world of today. I mean, we were, you know, we were fortunate to be at Johns Hopkins Sice. Um, even that institution, I think, is changing. What What is your take on the academic world, the ability of academics such as yourself to contribute to the debates about foreign policy and our understanding of it, and in general to engage with the real world as opposed to simply the axioms of social science? Well, uh, viewed from a distance, because I've been retired now for going on six years, and I taught for 25 years at SAIS, which since you both also taught there, you know, is different from a political science department in a major research university. Uh, my impression is that what you say is correct. In fact, uh, you'll recall, Elliot, that at the end of our time at SAIS, we had trouble doing searches because the what had always been the feeding ground for SICE faculty, that is political science departments, weren't producing people that we could hire. We couldn't hire not only because you and I weren't interested in what they were doing, but because our students wouldn't be interested. We wouldn't, you know, students wouldn't come to SICE if that was what was being taught. Why is that so? Uh, I think there are three reasons, or at least this is my hypothesis. One, uh, universities are in big trouble because of the woke revolution. And the woke revolution has no time for conflict, for America being anything other than a hellhole, for military history. So that's, that's a problem. And, but that's a bigger, that, that's a, a big problem for the United States as a whole. Uh, second, uh, there is what's happened in political science. For a variety of reasons, political science has succumbed to what somebody called physics envy and has become entirely quantitative, which is really irrelevant to public policy. Um, and uh, third, um, the end of the Cold War uh, meant that 
issues of war and peace seem not to be as relevant as before. Uh, I think you can date the falling off of interest in foreign policy to the end of the Cold War. I know that's true at Harvard. Uh, it's probably true at other places. And I'm proud to say as a Yale alumnus, and I'm sorry to say there are a lot of things about Yale I'm not proud of, but even during the Cold War, Paul Kennedy and John Gaddis con conceived and organized the Grand Strategy Program, which does deal with all these issues. Um, so uh, I, I, I think for all those reasons, universities are now completely irrelevant to foreign policy and it's all migrated to think tanks. And just as you, Elliot, uh, and you, Eric, have migrated from SICE to think tanks, that's where serious consideration of foreign policy is going. I'm happy that we have think tanks, which are very good. I wish we had the old universities back. Maybe we will someday, but when and how, I don't know. And part of the problem at Yale, speaking as an alum, is that the folks at Grand Strategy, particularly with the passing of Charlie Hill last year, the third sort of musketeer of the Grand Strategy effort there, um, they can't replace themselves. I mean, they literally can't you know, get themselves replaced in part because there aren't people like them coming out of academia anymore, but also they can't get them hired in the history department um, at Yale, given some of the trends you've talked about, Michael. Before I kick it to Elliot to ask his, his I question, I know he's dying to, to ask you, which will get us away from the world of policy and into the world of arts and letters, which is great. Before you wrote this book, you wrote uh, another very interesting book uh, a year or so or two ago. I think it, did it come out just before COVID, I think? Yeah. The Rise and Fall of Peace on Earth is the title, and you, Eric, were kind enough to be on a panel to discuss it. Yeah, and you know, you also had a version of it in Foreign Affairs, a, a, a short article that gave the gist of it. But would I be reading it wrong to say that these three big problems we've been talking about, uh, U.S. facing in the podcast today, Russia, China, Iran and its uh, search for a nuclear weapon, that in the end of the day, the only real policy option that makes sense is, as you were saying about Putin, is that we have to somehow either wait or try and hasten the change of regime in all three places if we're actually going to have a, any kind of real accommodation that allows us to imagine a sort of less conflictual relationship. Would that be a misreading of? No, that's an accurate reading and a better summary than I've given of my view. Uh, now our, our uh, policy ought to be deterrence with the hope of eventual regime change, but we don't know how to bring about regime change. And that's not to say that we can't do some business with these uh, countries, especially China, where there's a lot of economic business to do. But as long as these regimes are what they are, they will present a military threat. And as long as they do that, someone, some group of countries will have to counter that military threat with military forces of its own and or of their own. And although uh, alliances are extremely important for the United States, 
Uh, and although the United States can and should uh, confront those countries as part of a coalition, uh, unless the world gets turned upside down, it is the United States that will be, to mix metaphors, the tentpole of that coalition. Okay, so Mike, I get to uh, ask the final question. Among your many interests, I'm not competent to talk about baseball, but I can talk about mystery fiction. And you are a tremendous aficionado of mystery fiction. You write reviews. Uh, at the end of the year for the American interest, you always recommend a bunch of books. So I, I'm going to ask you two questions. One, explain the appeal of mystery or, if you will, detective fiction. What is it that, that engages you about it? Is there some you know, deeper meaning there? And then uh, if you could recommend just three authors to our listening audience, I think uh, they and we would be extremely grateful. Well, thank you. Um, W.H. Auden and, um, gosh, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, the guy who was at Columbia for years and years and wrote From Dawn to Decadence. Uh, Jacques Barzun. Jacques Barzun were both mystery aficionados. And one of them, I think it was... Uh, Auden said, every man of sensibility and culture is a mystery fan. Uh, now, why am I a mystery fan? And, and why are so many people mystery fans? Well, I have a hypothesis. And it goes back to my interest in sports, which you were kind enough to mention. And I will plug a 2004 book I written called The Meaning of Sports, Why Americans Watch Baseball, Football, and Basketball, and What They See When They Do. I argue that this, that team sports are a particular form of mass entertainment because uh, they are coherent and they are uh, uh, authentic. That is, people really do what you see them do. Um, and there was one other. I can't remember what the third was. But uh, coherence is important. And I think that's where mysteries and sports overlap. They have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, they're all rule-governed sports formally, mysteries informally. Um, and in the end, you know you're going to find out what happened. So it's like having an itch that ultimately gets scratched. You know, you, you try to figure out who done it, and you're usually wrong. But at the end, you find out. And that's, I think, an emotionally satisfying experience, especially since we live in a world in which things are not so neat. Um, I, I, my, my argument is that uh, modernism as a cultural phenomenon, whether you take Joyce or Picasso or atonal music, is all a reflection of incoherence. It's, it's, it says the world is incoherent and we're going to portray it. Uh, plots are, are, are old hat. We don't have those anymore. But I think there's a human need for coherence, for things holding together. Uh, that's why there are so many myths in, in societies, because they always explain things and have a conclusion. And I think that... Uh, Mysteries as a genre are the equivalent, in some sense, of myths for preliterate societies. Anyway, such is my thought. Well, that's that's convincing. Now, uh, you could wrap it up by giving us three authors that 
you think our extremely uh, curious and open-minded listeners would should read. Okay, well, Agatha Christie is very good on plots. Poirot, Hercule Poirot is uh, wonderful. And, uh, and I think uh, that unusually, the televised Poirot is in some ways as good as or even better than uh, the Poirot of print. Uh, David Suchet is a marvelous Poirot, so I would recommend those. I recommended uh, Peter Lovesy, who's a British mystery author who has a detective called Peter Diamond. They're 21 Peter Diamond mysteries, and they take place in Bath, which is interesting because you learn a lot about Bath. I'm now reading um, a series by Philip Kerr, who died recently. This is the Bernie Gunther series. Bernie Gunther is a German detective in Berlin, and this takes you all the way from Weimar through the war to the 1950s and takes you to Latin America and briefly to the United States as well. Uh, the mysteries are pretty good, and it has th these books have two additional features that uh, recommend themselves to me. One, stylistically, he is the true heir to the greatest of all American detective authors, namely Raymond Chandler. Uh, Bernie Gunther is more like Philip Marlowe, Chandler's uh, detective, than, than anybody else. Second, it's a way to learn a lot about Germany and what it was like to live in Germany and to live through the Weimar and uh, Nazi periods, and, and even in the war, because he's in the war, where uh, you are a non-Jewish anti-Nazi, he's a social democrat, but you, you decide that leaving isn't for you, and therefore you experience it all with a jaundiced eye. Terrific. Eric, close it out. Well, that brings us to the end of this particular episode of Shield of the Republic. You know, come for the historical analysis of national security policy and stick around for the literary criticism. It's just, you know, a perfect way to end this. Our guest has been Michael Mandelbaum, the author of The Four Ages of American Foreign Policy, Weak Power, Great Power, Superpower, and Hyperpower. Uh, it is, uh, among other things, an excellent read. Michael, thank you for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you for, for having me on. And I have to say, it's daunting to be interviewed by two people who know at least as much about American history as I do, but I feel I've gotten through it. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Thank you. If you have enjoyed Shield of the Republic, please make sure to give us a like on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts from and drop us a line at shieldoftherepublic at gmail.com. Uh, we read all of the uh, emails we get, and Elliot occasionally even answers some of them, uh, which is a way of saying that I've been negligent in getting back to some of our listeners. But thanks, Elliot, and thanks, Michael, for uh, a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you.